Christian Educational Ministries is pleased to present Ronald L. Dart. Well, as was mentioned earlier, I want to talk to you a little bit about today about the, the subject of speaking in tongues, and particularly of 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, I feel that as we come down to the season of the year with Pentecost coming up, the question naturally arises. I noticed that we were ready to go into Acts, the second chapter in the Bible study today, and I felt that it really is necessary at some point in time to begin to explain in connection with Acts 2 just what this 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians is all about. Because there has come a uh, some rather strange ideas that people have about speaking in tongues, what it's all about, what it's for. Uh, it's rather electrifying, as a matter of fact, to be sitting in a congregation or perhaps listening to a speaker on the radio and all of a sudden hear him break out into some language that you've never heard before. And the fact of the matter is, no one else listening to him has ever heard before. And uh, you think, well, this is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And, of course, it can be a very exciting thing to take place to someone who believes firmly in their heart of hearts that that is of God. But there are some problems connected with it. And I think if you'll turn your Bible back to 1 Corinthians 14, you'll begin very readily to see what I mean. First of all, the very existence of 1 Corinthians 14 tells us that there was a problem. Because if all that had been happening at Corinth was the routine manifestation of a gift that was commonly present in the church, let me repeat that, if all we had going on here was the manifestation of a gift that was routinely manifested in the church, there would have been no special reason for Paul to have made or written this particular chapter dealing with what is a problem in Corinth. Because the latter, but really most of this epistle, as a matter of fact, is, is a problem-solution epistle. He is dealing with specific problems and questions that existed in the Corinthian church, right? I mean, that's fairly evident. As you go along, the church was divided, so he deals with the question of division. There was a, a problem with hair length, as a matter of fact, and he had to deal with that problem. There was a problem of, of uh, meats offered to idols that he had to address, the attitude of the church relative to meats offered to idols. And so he is bringing up things that created as a problem. Even the observance of the Passover was a problem in this particular church. And so in the 11th chapter, he has to explain about the observance of the Passover. And in 12, 13, and 14, he addresses the question of spiritual gifts which was apparently a point of considerable vanity to the Corinthian church. He tells them, I'm aware of the fact that you come behind in no gift. He is very encouraging to them about the fact that they are a very gifted church. But he then tries to show them that these gifts that exist in the church, the spiritual gifts, should not, if they're of God, be any cause of division or disharmony in the church. But the fact is, and it's very evident from 1 Corinthians 14, that whatever was happening in Corinth was contributing to division in the church. It was a problem to these people. If it had not been a problem, Paul would not need have addressed it. What is rather remarkable is that the manifestations of speaking in tongues nowadays, when it occurs in those churches where tongue speaking is not a part of the tradition of that church, it is almost automatically a source of division in the church. It's rather uncanny. I, I, I had not realized it to that extent myself. I think in most Pentecostal churches, of course, where tongue speaking is a part of the church's tradition, that it is not necessarily a point of division. But when it first began to appear in this country, and when it began that the Pentecostal or the tongues movement really first began to appear, there was a considerable amount of opposition to it, and a great deal of, di of, of division that began to arise in churches where tongue speaking began to 
I, I choose the word erupt, perhaps that's not the best one, but to appear or to be manifested in one way or another. Now we have tongue-speaking Catholics, tongue-speaking Baptists, tongue-speaking Methodists, uh, as this has come along. But inevitably, as researchers who've looked into the subject have found, it does create division in the congregation. Now that alone should be enough to give a person pause, to ask himself, why would that take place? Well, as I said, Paul is dealing with this question, not merely of tongues, but of spiritual gifts in general, but tongues is one that he does focus in on, because it seems to be as though it were a, a peculiar focus of the problem having to do with division, with the attitudes of people in the church, and with their responsiveness to or from one another. Now, as I said, I feel that what we have happening in 1 Corinthians 14 is something quite different from what took place in the second chapter of Acts. The reason I say this is because if it was exactly the same, it would not have been worthy of comment, because there's every reason to believe that the speaking in tongues, Paul says, I speak with tongues more than you all, so he himself was a tongue speaker in that sense, in some sense. The question is, in what sense? And what was it that was wrong with the speaking in tongues in Corinth that was creating the problem is the question I think we need to address to ourselves today. Before we do, let's go back to the second chapter of the book of Acts again and re re refresh ourselves as to what really took place there, and so that we can understand to what extent it either is the same as or in what way it differs from what was going on in 1 Corinthians 14. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house or where they were sitting. I think some of those commentators feel that this was the temple, the ready access of information out from these people to others who then rushed in where they were implies that it was a relatively public place. And there was no reason to, uh, to have doubted that they might well have been in the temple or some segment of the temple on the day of Pentecost. So there appeared unto them distributed tongues like fire, and it sat upon each of them. Now, this is a, a strange manifestation, a roar that comes all. There's no wind. Not a leaf would be stirring. But a roar like wind comes through the whole place, and then all of a sudden there is an apparition that appears of distributed, not divided or forked tongues, but distributed tongues coming out and settling on each one of these people that were assembled in this place. It must have been a hair-raising experience. I, I can't imagine how it must, you must have felt had you been, let's say, either a participant or even a non-participating observer of this particular thing. It would have, would have scared you half out of your wits. It then says, They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, what do you mean, tongues? What does this mean? Does this mean languages? Does this mean known languages? Does it mean unknown languages? Are they unknown tongues or known tongues? Is it a valid question to ask? It's answered in the second chapter of Acts. There were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. This is a fairly normal thing. Through the period of the Diaspora, of course, the Jews had been dispersed everywhere. I suspect that there was not a nation under heaven, at least an inhabited or civilized nation under heaven. Uh, you're not sure how uh, 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 inclusive Luke intends to be with his language here, whether he is speaking metaphorically of every civilized language or whether he literally means uh, every single one. I think probably he's speaking in more general terms. It really doesn't matter uh, for the purpose of understanding what he's driving at. He says there were Jews. Now, these Jews living, many of them, the Jews had been out there for so long that numerous generations, in fact, had been born of children that had lived and their entire lives and begat children and grandchildren, and still they're living there. So they had were third and fourth generation Babylonian Jews who were at this time, though, living in Jerusalem. 
I mean, they came and they went, and many of them, because of whatever reason, would come home to Jerusalem for education. They would come home to Jerusalem to study with the rabbis, to renew their religion, and so they were were Jews uh, of some well to do, some wealthy means in most cases, I think, for them to have been able to have picked up and left Mesopotamia or Babylon and come to have lived in Jerusalem, as I said, perhaps for education or other purposes. We don't know altogether. Commerce, of course, played, I'm sure, a very large part in why many of these Jews were back there. But the important thing to realize is that, that the native languages of these people that were born in Babylon was Babylonian, and they considered Babylonian to be their native tongue, just like a Jew born in the United States would speak English. A Jew born in uh, uh, some other part of this world, like Germany, will speak Germany. A Jew born in France will probably speak French. Now, in many cases, they have another language of Yiddish nowadays, and certainly it was true in these days that they also, in many cases, spoke either Greek or Aramaic, a version of Hebrew. And so the, uh, uh, the linguistic uh, situation here of people living or dwelling in Jerusalem after having been born in, say, Babylon, would leave them probably bilingual, probably speaking Greek uh, or Aramaic if they lived in Palestine, and also, of course, their Babylonian language as well. Now, the, the consequences of this are rather interesting. It really wasn't necessary for the, for the purpose of communicating with a large body of people for them to be given the gift of every language known under heaven. It just wasn't necessary, because the chances are that virtually, I mean, the, the majority, 90% of the population of that city would have understood them perfectly well in Koine Greek, which all of them spoke. Uh, it's very likely that, uh, that Aramaic, or I think Aramaic really was the common language that these gentlemen spoke. I have a feeling, though, judging from subsequent events, that they also spoke Greek. Uh, but in any case, they, they could have been speaking either Greek or Aramaic and been understood by most of the population. There really wasn't a need for it purely for the purpose of preaching the gospel. Now, what happens here, though? It says there were Jews living there of every nation under heaven. Now, when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded or troubled in mind because every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these that speak Galileans? How hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamians, Judeans, Cappadocians, Pontus, Asians, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians. We do hear them speak in our languages the wonderful works of God. Now, there are 16 nationalities represented here. And as I mentioned last week in the Bible study, that, that I think that it's very important to realize that we are dealing here in the book of Acts, and the book of Acts, one of the themes of the book of Acts is the transition that is taking place between what is, originates, it really is a Jewish sect, a Jewish religion, into a universal church. We use the word Catholic, but that has unfortunate connotations for some of our people. But into a universal church to appeal to all men of all languages everywhere. And this, this miracle is highly symbolic as well as being a manifestation of God's power, as well as being useful for communicating the gospel, it is extremely symbolic because the purpose of the miracle is to demonstrate God's intent to take the gospel to every nation under heaven in their language and to communicate to human beings. Now, I asked the question earlier, are these known tongues or unknown tongues? Clearly, they are known tongues. Clearly, apart from the manifestation of God's intent to take the gospel into these nations, every nation under, under heaven, there is the intent in the gift of tongues to, be, to use that 
for human communication. Human communication. I think it's very important for us to understand that in the second chapter of Acts, we are not dealing with the communication between man and God, or man and angel. For in very truth, there is absolutely no need whatever for man to need a language or for to, so that God can understand what man is saying. God need not give man a, a language to communicate with him. For God can communicate in any language known to man. God even understands our groanings. He even understands our, our crying out without, without words of a, a cry of pain, a cry of anguish, a, the weeping and the shedding of our tears. He understands and reads every, every, every form of language in which a man is even capable of communicating. So as far as a need for a prayer language to communicate with God, this is not necessary in the first place. And in the second place, that's not what was going on in the second chapter of Acts. They were speaking forth the wonderful works of God in the languages that men understood. Now, going to 1 Corinthians 14, I want you to go down just a little ways into the chapter, all the way down to verses 22 and all the way through verse 24. Because in these verses we have a peculiar contradiction. And I think that by starting here we can begin to understand or grasp the fact that we have not always approached this 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians with the right premise and consequently have been led to some wrong conclusions. In the 22nd verse he says, Wherefore, tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to those who don't believe. Clear enough? Okay, tongues are for a sign. We understand that that could mean, and I think many people read this, they say, okay, tongues are for a sign. That means an, an outward manifestation to impress or to prove or to demonstrate the power of God. Okay, we have unbelievers, and we speak in tongues as a sign to them. It's a sign of what? Well, a sign that God's power is here. And we see this, and we are really impressed by the fact this is a miracle of God, and we have it, and we use it as proof. Some people actually would read that sign. Tongues are for a proof. Not to them that believe, for they need no proof. But they are for a proof to unbelievers. Is that what it means? Read on. Prophesying, on the other hand, serves not for them that believe not, but for them that believe. Then he gives us an illustration. If, therefore, the whole church be come together into one place, and all speak with tongues, and there comes in one of those that is unlearned or an unbeliever. Here we have the test. Will they not say that you are mad? Now, wait a minute. Just before, we have seen that some people have interpreted this verse that says, tongues are a sign to unbelievers, not to believers, to mean that this is offered to unbelievers as something to prove to them, or to be a sign to them, or a witness to them. And yet, this says that the result of speaking in tongues before unbelievers is that they think you're mad. And indeed, even speaking in languages that were known to men, they thought they were mad in the second chapter of Acts. Going on. On the other hand, he said, if all prophesy, and there come in one that believes not or is unlearned, he is convinced of all, he is judged of all, and thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. Now, which of the two responses from an unbeliever who comes into our group here do we want to have? That he stands there and says that we are crazy and turns around and leaves, or that he comes to worship God and recognize that God is with us? Well, obviously, we want the latter. 
Therefore, what we want is prophesying, not speaking in tongues, right? And yet, in verse 22, does not Paul say, But tongues are a sign not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. Prophesying serves not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. Now, either Paul was confused, or else there's something we're reading here, or something that we have not seen and not understand and not grasped about what it is that Paul is trying to say. Now, this realizing that, that we have tended to approach this with some pre preconceptions or some ideas that have, I think, caused us to take some wrong turns. Let's go back to verse 1 now, 1 Corinthians 14, and analyze what we read here and see if we can come to understand what it means, what the consequences of it are, what Paul was really dealing with in Corinth. Follow after love, he says in verse 1. He has just discussed love at great length in chapter 13. And desire spiritual gifts, but prefer that you may prophesy. He rates far above any other spiritual gift really except love. He rates prophesying because of the change that it, that it makes in people's lives. For he that speaks in an unknown tongue, and the word unknown, you'll notice, is in italics in your Bible. It is really not there. The translators, however, may have been correct in inserting that, because at least as, as an interpretation. For it does appear that even though the tongues in Acts were known tongues, that the tongues in 1 Corinthians 14 were unknown tongues. Now, reading on, he said, "...the he that speaks in a tongue speaks not unto men, but unto God, for no man understands him. Howbeit in the Spirit he speaks mystery." Now, is Paul here discussing the way things ought to be, or the way things were in Corinth? In other words, is he describing tongue-speaking as, as it occurred as a normal manifestation in the church when he says, he that speaks in the church, wherever he may be in an unknown tongue, is not speaking unto men, but unto God. But you see, back in, in, in Acts, the second chapter, they were speaking to men in languages men understood about God. They were not speaking to God in the presence of men in languages the men did not understand. Is Paul here then talking about the way it ought to be or the way it was in the church as a whole? Or is he describing the, the particular manifestation of tongues as it was happening in Corinth? Because you see, whatever is happening here did not happen in Paul's presence. He was not there whenever it took place. Whatever had happened there, he had had a full report on the manifestation. He had a report on what had been done, who had done it, the effect on the church, but he had not seen it himself. And I rather gather that it was not only a problem to the church, as is evident as we read on through the chapter, that it was a problem to the church, but secondly, that Paul did not fully understand what was going on himself. For he is groping a little bit in his attempt to deal with speaking in tongues in Corinth. I have become persuaded, frankly, that what was happening in Corinth at this time is not at all different from what happens in some Protestant churches today who have no history of tongue speaking in their church, and suddenly a tongues movement breaks out or begins to move into a particular congregation among some of its members. I think we may very well have been seeing in Corinth at that time an identical manifestation to what happens in the charismatic movement in the Catholic Church today, the charismatic movement in the Methodist Church and others, which creates a problem for those churches when it does rise and which many people are a little bit at a loss to know what to do with it. They are reluctant to attribute that tongue speaking often to demonism because the fruits of demonism are otherwise not there. 
The people seem to have a great deal of love for one another. They are compassionate. They are helpful. They, they manifest Christian duties in their life. And there is no, none of the, uh, the strangeness that oftentimes we attribute to demonism or any of the other fruits that uh, you can subtly uh, connect to it. I was surprised to learn, I had not realized as I began to do some research on the subject, that tongue speaking is not a purely Christian phenomenon. That actually there are instances of what is called ecstatic speech uh, in the ancient Egyptian religions. Uh, certain instances of tongue speaking have taken place in the ancient Greek religions. And so you, and, I, and doubtless in other ways as well. So there is no reason, first of all, to assume that merely by breaking out or a speaking in tongues is immediately a representation of either God or the devil. It may possibly even be a human phenomenon. I uh, did some research, which, and some men have done some research, I should say, which has indicated that that may very well be the case. That there are certain psychological factors, they termed it regression, they had a, I think, a rather interesting theory to account for speaking in tongues as a purely human phenomenon. There are too many instances, you know, that I can think of myself where I would be totally reluctant to attribute what I had seen or heard to the devil because the fruits of that were not, in the, were not manifest in the people's lives. And I couldn't attribute it to God, for the fruits of that were not manifest either. And there's only really one alternative left, and that it is, this, that it is a, a peculiar human phenomenon that takes place in certain people, uh, not dissimilar to what takes place in hypnosis in, some, in, in many cases. So tongues as a, a phenomenon may be of God, as the gift of tongues can be manifested. It possibly can be of the devil. And it can also be sometimes a purely human manifestation. I'll leave the, uh, the nature of uh, specific instances of tongue speaking, just like Paul left them, uh, for God to show us or reveal to us at some other time. But let's go back now again, verse 2 of chapter 14. He that is speaking in a tongue is not speaking to men... He's speaking to God, for no man understands him, how, albeit in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. The way I think I understand that is that Paul has, has heard, someone has arrived there, and has told him what is going on in Corinth. That someone has stood up in church, has spoken in a language that not one soul in the congregation understood. And so Paul, writing back to them, said, Now this, this fellow, or these people in Corinth, who are speaking in these tongues, are not speaking to men. Because nobody in the congregation understands a word that they are saying. Only God can understand them, is I think what he is saying. He is not necessarily saying that, that tongue speaking, as a rule, is strictly for the purpose of speaking to God. Why? It isn't necessary to speak to God. God speaks English quite as well as any of us do is able to communicate with us that way. And if we were able to speak French or German or anything else, we could speak to God as well in all of them. He that prophesied, prophesies, he says on the other hand, speaks unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. Now the word edification is interesting and very important. It's used several times in this chapter. The King James translators and their choice of the word edification were probably quite correct because the archaic meaning of the word edify included the concept of building something. And the idea of, of, of building uh, a building uh, and using the term edify for the concept of building or edification. And of course we have the word edifice today, which refers to a large building. But we do not today use the term edify in the sense of to build something. I would not say I'm going to edify a house. I say I'm going to build a house. Well now, the problem that there is a difference, frankly, in the understanding or the use of the term. The Greek word for that is here translated edification, or later translated edify, still retained an ambiguity 
in the Word. Today, the word edify does not really retain any ambiguity in the English language. It just simply means to teach or by teaching to instill uh, character or moral principles or guidance is the idea of edify. Whereas the Greek word could be used equally well of the building of a building. And, was, and for example, edify does not retain that meaning in our language. It did retain it in the Greek. You would actually say, if we were going to say that edify, to use edify is exactly the same sense as the, uh, the word in the Greek that is here translated edify, we would say to ourselves, I'm going to edify an edification, thereby saying I'm going to build a building. The fact of the matter is, the only translation that is really valid in the 20th century, in 20th century English, of the word, the Greek word here translated edification, is the word building. For building does retain the ambiguity that the Greek word did and is still used in two ways, whereas edification is not used in two ways any longer. Building is. We talk in terms of building character. We talk in terms of building a congregation. We think in terms of building people's uh, moral standard or building relationships. We use building in that way. And at the same time, we also use it for this structure in which we are now seated. We say we will build a building. We will say I, that we will build a relationship. So build is a much better word to, for us to understand this with. Now, it's very important to understand there, the, this, this ambiguity. It was not lost on the Corinthians. It tends to be lost a little bit on us. First of all, he that prophesies speaks unto men to building and exhortation and encouragement. He that speaks in a, in a tongue builds himself, but he that prophesies builds the church. The concept, and I think the way this is oftentimes understood by people who, who believe in speaking in unknown tongues, is the idea that actually the person who speaks in tongues is improving Himself. They take the modern English usage of the word of self-edification, of, of the building of character in yourself or the building of a relationship with God in the meaning of this. But the truth of the matter is that the, the structure and the way Paul uses the term and throws it off against building the church says essentially that the person who is speaking in tongues is self-oriented. He is building himself, but the person who prophesies is building the church, showing there is a negative side to the use of tongues as it was taking place in Corinth. And yet Paul is cautious. Paul is not ready to attribute this manifestation to the devil. And I think that we need to be very careful about saying that things are satanic or of the devil or demonic uh, in, in any way at all because of the possibility of a false accusation that we could be making. All right, he that speaks in a, in a, in a tongue builds himself. He that prophesies builds the church. I would that you all spoke with tongues, but I would rather that you prophesied. Now, that's fascinating. If Paul had a choice at this point in time, he's telling them, I would far rather that all of you have the gift of preaching rather than the gift of tongues, if I had a choice. Which really indicates, and of course you find tongues always listed very late and very low on the gift of, uh, gifts of the Holy Spirit. And yet, for some reason... Probably the most exciting, I guess, and it's very obvious the reasons for it, but the most exciting, the most thrilling, the most sought-after gift of people who are looking for spiritual gifts is the gift of tongues. Because it is a, a public manifestation. It's an open manifestation. It's like having the very validation of God on your, on your soul, as it were, your being and your spirit. And I couldn't think of anything better, you know, to, to give a person his own internal uplift. But Paul's not that sure. He said he would be prefer that we all be able to preach to, or to persuade or to speak with inspiration rather than to, to speak in tongues. 
For greater is he that prophesies than he that speaks with tongues, with one exception, if he is able to interpret so that the church may receive building. Fascinating, isn't it? Paul here says how he understands the purpose of tongues. Paul feels that tongues is nowhere near as important as prophesying, that he relegates it to a very low position in the spiritual gifts of the church. He says that it has one purpose that renders it on a level with prophesying, and that is if it is interpreted so that the people who are listening can be built. For the truth is, he says, nothing happens to this congregation. If I stand up here and I speak to you in French, or if I speak to you in German, or if I speak with the tongues of angels, nothing happens to you. That's Paul's point, and it's an important one. His, his conclusion is that the way tongues are being used in Corinth is purely for the building of the self. And he seems to be implying that that's not the way God's Spirit works. Now, now brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, how can I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge or by prophesying or by doctrine? Why, he said, if I come to you and speak to you, what's the point unless we are engaging in human communication? All right, he, he understood. Paul's whole attitude, Paul's approach to tongues was that of Acts 2. His experience with tongues up until this point was with the second chapter of Acts type of speaking in tongues, with the Pentecostal, the true Pentecostal speaking in tongues. He was able to go into a place where he had not learned the language and speak in the language of those people. He did speak with tongues, but he understood the purpose of tongues to be to communicate with people, not merely to aggrandize himself or to make himself feel better in some way. Even things without life, giving sound, whether a pipe or a harp, unless there is a distinction in the sounds, how shall it be known what is piped or harped? Now, those men who have been in the military for any period of time have probably, in most cases, learned the difference between mess call and officer's call as far as bugles are concerned. Of course, nowadays, with our squawk boxes in the 20th century, they not only give you the bugle, they then get on the box and they tell you what it was all about, so most of us were pretty safe as far as getting lost. All of us know the, knew the difference between taps and reveille. That is really simple to figure out. What is Paul saying? He's saying, look, even things without life, we're li we have life, we're human beings, and so when we stand up to make sounds, he said it is anticipated that the sounds should have some meaning. Because even a pipe or a trumpet or a harp, there is a distinction in the sounds. If I stand up here and I blow a series of notes that are all the same and all space the same, just a series, straight down, straight line, or if I blow a long blast on the trumpet, I, I can only convey by a long blast on the trumpet one thing. And we will have had to have agreed about that beforehand. I'll have to tell you, a long blast on the trumpet means... Uh, that, I, that, the, that the enemy is on the horizon. And so I'm, if, if I want to try to tell you something else... If I want to tell you that, that he's on their right flank, or if I want to tell you I've just got a message from somebody that he's behind us, I can't do that. I can't blow the trumpet for that way. If I tell you that, I, that, that to blow the trumpet means to assemble, then if somebody comes and I really want to tell everybody to run for the hills, I've got no way to blow. If I blow the trumpet, all they're going to do is come in. I can't tell them to go out. So we have to agree. We have to have something that is understood that if we blow the trumpet this way, it means this. 
If we blow it the other way, it means that. If we have this combination of longs and shorts or highs and lows, it can convey some other meaning. I can call them in a chow. I can call the officers in. I can call a general assembly. I can sound charge. I can sound retreat. I can do anything I want to do. I can have a whole spectrum of little tunes we play, all of which convey meaning to the people who hear me. Paul's whole thing, and he's, he's trying he's desperately to find some way of getting across to his listeners that the whole point of standing up and speaking in church is to convey meaning. It's as simple as that. And yet, for some reason, it gets lost somewhere along the way. For if the trumpet gives an uncertain sound, verse 8, who will prepare himself to, the, to battle? If some guy stands up there and, and plays what's supposed to be charged, and it comes out in some sort of garbled thing that you can't really recognize, people start milling around and wondering, what do we do next? So likewise, you, unless you utter by the tongue words significant, not just easy, but the marge of the Greek is significant to be understood, how shall it be known what is spoken? You shall speak into the air. Ah, now we're getting down to where we understand what Paul is saying. Is he trying to say that the purpose of tongues is to speak to God? No, no. What he is saying is, in your congregation, God's the only person who could possibly understand what these people are saying. It's a polite way of saying, God, what is, what is he saying? God only knows. Does that mean that God really does know? No, what he is trying to say is that no human being is understanding what's going on. The only person who could is God. And yet what he really means to say by all this is, unless you're talking to these people in words that they understand, you are speaking into the air, brother. Even if you were, for example, if I were to stand here with my very limited ability of French and were to carry, you know, speak a little bit, and assuming that I could, could make myself clear in French, how many of you would understand what I say? May I see your hands? So I could even be uttering words significant to be understood, and one person here might be able to struggle through and understand part of what I say in French because the audience doesn't understand. What, where would I be speaking? I would be speaking into the air. Would God understand me? Oh, yeah, he would understand me as far as that part of it is going. But I can speak to God without words. I don't need French to speak to him. I would feel much more comfortable in English. So he says there may be so many kinds of voices in the world, and none of them is without signification. The word signification means meaning. None of them is without sig significance, or the word significance comes from the word sign, or a sign which is a, 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 a type of a thing we use to convey meaning from one person to another. It may be signing, for example, for a deaf, deaf person means something totally different from what it means to you. Signing them means a particular series of movements of the hand that convey words or letters of the alphabet or numbers so that they can communicate really sometimes quite rapidly uh, with the use of their hands. But even that has signification has signs to convey meaning. Therefore, if I know not the meaning of the voice, I shall be to him that speaks a barbarian, and he that speaks shall be a barbarian to me. Now let's pause just for a moment. Let's stick ourselves back again in the first century to the Apostle Paul, writing this letter from someplace away from Corinth, back to those people there, trying to deal with a problem that took place since he left, a manifestation of speaking in tongues where the people who are sitting out here do not understand what someone is doing when they stand up in the congregation and speak. No one there, not one soul there, understands a word that the person is saying. And so he's, he's writing them, he's trying to explain desperately that the purpose of speaking is to communicate. That's the whole point. And what was wrong with the speaking in tongues in Corinth is that it was not communicating. Now, for all we know, 
the people may have been speaking Swahili. They may have been speaking a real language of real people that weren't there. For all we know, for all we know, it may have been nothing more than a glossolalia, an ecstatic utterance, uh, a series of syllables that no human being who has ever lived would understand. We don't really know what the person was doing, and in a lot of ways it really doesn't make any difference. Because what Paul is saying is that in the church, and as far as our relationship with one another is concerned, we are to speak with understanding. He said, Even so you, verse 12, for as much as you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that you may excel to the building of the church. So let him that speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Now, I'm not sure what he means by that. It's not at all clear what Paul means by that. I can look at it two or three ways. One way, I think, that is oftentimes said, he said, Now, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but I don't understand what I am saying. Is that what he means? Seems strange. Why on earth would God want to enable you to pray to him in a way that you did not understand? What's the purpose? What's the object? Uh, I would be very, very, you know, a little bit spooky about the idea of my communicating to something to God. And I did not know what was coming out of my mouth. Where is the thought originating that is coming out of my mouth? If it's not originating in my mind and I don't understand what it's all about. And that makes me, or it makes me very nervous about that idea. Why would God need to do anything like that? What is the purpose of such a thing taking place along that line? It's difficult to, to fathom any purpose, and none is explained here. There's another way, however, of understanding that verse. He says, If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding does not bear fruit. What do you mean by that? It means the fact that I understand something, and I speak in an unknown tongue, but there are no results. Why? Because nobody understands it. And I think that's what Paul is saying. He says, If I pray in a tongue... My spirit, my mind is praying. That's what he, my spirit prays. That's what he means, isn't it? My, my mind, my innermost being is praying. But my understanding, in other words, it isn't that he doesn't understand. He does understand. My understanding is unfruitful. It doesn't bear any fruit in you, my, your mind. One of the objects of speaking is to take an idea that's in my mind, placed there by God or reasoned there by me or, or thought up by me, and to convey it to you and to plant it in your mind. So that you then can evaluate it, test it against the Scriptures, and arrive at certain decisions. But if I pray before you in a language you don't understand, my mind, my heart, my spirit is praying all right, but my understanding is not bearing any fruit with you. Inner spirit prays, but if he doesn't understand what he's saying, doesn't make any sense at all. You might as well have said that verse in an unknown tongue for all the meaning it would convey to us. What is it then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I'll pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit. I will sing with the understanding also. Understanding by who? By himself or with you? For see, what he is talking about here is not private worship, but the collective worship of the church. I will pray with my mind, but I will also pray being understood. I will sing with my heart and my spirit, but I will also sing being understood. What is it then? He says, I else, when you shall, here's where the explanation for this comes through. Else, when you shall bless with the Spirit, how shall he that occupies the room of the unlearning, unlearned say amen at your giving of thanks, seeing he understands not what you say? 
Now that verse explains as clear as possible what Paul means by the preceding verses. He is not talking about some sort of gibberish coming out of his mouth that he does not understand. He is talking about the fact that he is praying, he is singing, but that you don't understand. So that consequently for me to stand when we're all around here, and when I am quite capable of speaking to you in English, and to pray over the food that we have here and give thanks in French, what sort of, you know, and at the end of it I say amen and you say amen. How can you say amen? Verily, so be it. How can you join yourself to that prayer when you haven't the faintest idea of what I said? You might do so because you had confidence that I would not say anything wrong, but your, your amen before God means nothing. For as I spoke, you understood nothing. And so amen just means amen, I guess, I like, you know, amen to whatever he says. So Paul here is talking about a situation. It seems a little bit hard for us to understand because we weren't in Corinth. We weren't there. We had not seen the manifestation. I think the, the verses are probably quite clear to the people that were there. Verily, he says, you give thanks well, but the other person is not built. Notice that the prayer is a specific, meaningful prayer of giving thanks. Not something that even the giver of the prayer does not understand. You verily give thanks well, but the other person is not built up. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. But in the church, I had rather speak five words with my understanding. What does he mean? I would rather speak five words being understood than ten thousand words in a tongue. Brethren, be not children in understanding, howbeit in malice be children, but in understanding be men. In the law, now we're coming to that segment having to do with the question of tongues for a sign for unbelievers. In the law it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips will I speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, saith the Lord. Wherefore tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. Now, how are we to understand what Paul is saying here? What, what does he mean? Is, are tongues given as a gift to the church, as a miraculous outward sign, as a proof of God's Holy Spirit in the church? Is that the point that Paul is making? Remember, we got down a few verses later, and that concept fell apart on us. And Paul even, even seems to be contradicting himself right there. Well, the, the particular scripture is said, In the law it is written. Where in the law? You may look in, you'd look in the Pentateuch in vain to find it, because the particular reference is found in Isaiah 28. Now, I want you to turn back there with me so that we can understand specifically what Paul is saying. The marginal reference you have there may say, probably says, Isaiah 28, 11 and 12. But we need to go back to verse 9, to the context of what it is that Paul is citing to his readers in Corinth. Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. For precept must be upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people. All right, there's our scripture that's being quoted. Why is he doing this? To whom he said, This is the rest wherewith you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, but they would not hear. What's he talking about? He is talking about the Israelites whom he brought out of Egypt into the wilderness, whom he was leading in the way into the promised land for their symbolic rest, and they would not listen to him. Because they didn't believe, because of their unbelief, and because of their lack of faith, he spoke to them in another tongue and with stammering lips and in a strange way that they would not understand. That's what the point is. With stammering lips, with another tongue, will he speak to this people. Why? 
The word unto the Lord was, un I'm sorry, to whom he said, This is the rest wherewith you may cause the weary to rest. This is the refreshing. But they wouldn't hear. The word of the Lord was to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Why? That they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. God spoke to these people with other languages to keep the truth from them. Now, that's a profound concept. Uh, I, I'll never forget the first time somebody pointed out when the, the reason Jesus spoke in parables to me, because I had been taught in Sunday school, I had grown up believing that parables were like illustrations or analogies that you use when you're speaking with people, and all trained public speakers use them all the time. We say, now, for example, or let me give you an illustration, or let me draw an analogy, and we begin to explain by a story or by something of this nature that we can use as an illustration. And it's logical to assume that that was what Jesus was doing. But disciples... Having heard him speak to them in parables, knowing what the meaning of a parable is, by the way, which is almost like riddle. The word parable really is far closer in its meaning to a riddle than it is to an illustration. And I, that's, that's lost, I'm afraid, on many people. But the fact of the matter is that they said to him, they came to him afterward, there's no, there would have been no sense for them to come to him afterward and say to him, Lord, why are you speaking to these people in illustrations and analogies? Because the use of illustrations and analogies is obvious. They came to him and said, Lord, why are you speaking to these people in riddles? And he said, because it is given to you to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to them it is not given. Shot me right out of the saddle the first time I saw that and realized what it meant. That there were certain people to whom God would not reveal the truth. That he intended for some people to see and he intended for some people not to see. I had, for some reason up to that point in my life, believed that it was God's intent for all men to see. I didn't understand that once God encountered rebellion in a people, He blinded them and concluded them in a state of unbelief so that at a later time He might have mercy on them. Whereas had He spoken to them plainly and continually, they would have rebelled anyway and would have lost any chance for salvation they would have ever had. It is God's mercy that causes Him to back off and speak with stammering lips and another tongue to a people who are hard-hearted and will not believe. Now, back to 1 Corinthians 14. In the law, verse 21, it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips will I speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, saith the Lord. Wherefore, tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that don't believe or are not believing. You realize what he's saying? He's saying to those people who have hardened their hearts, and won't believe. He said, I'm going to speak to them in tongues. Tongues are more or less a sign against, not believers, but unbelievers, the hard-hearted and rebellious. Now, if that's what it means, we may find it makes sense as we go along. On the other hand, prophesying is not for those who are not willing to believe. Prophesying and preaching is not for the, the hardened unbeliever. It is for the believer. If, therefore, the whole church come together in one place and all speak with tongues and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, and in this sense I don't think he necessarily means hard-hearted unbelievers, he means they just don't believe, or are unlearned, un unaware, or un not knowledgeable about these things, they're going to say you're mad. But if all preach and there come in one that believes or is unlearned, he can be convicted of all, he is judged of all. The secrets of his heart are made manifest. How? How many times in a sermon... Have you suddenly felt that it was almost like the preacher had been reading your mail? How many times have you said, Boy, he really stepped on my toes today. 
Uh, or how many times have you said, well, now you quit preaching and gone to meddling now? Whenever suddenly the preacher got right down to the secrets of your heart, secrets that he obviously doesn't know, but secrets that God does. Of course, one of the reasons the preachers are able to get down to the secrets in your hearts is because they're preaching to themselves, and they're just like you are. That's one of the reasons why that sometimes clicks, and you feel like the preacher's been reading your mail. In any case, he says, if, they, if one prophesied, the secrets of his hearts can be made manifest, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. I think that makes a lot more sense when you understand what Paul is saying. He's not saying that tongues are a, a miracle to convince the unbeliever. He said the only way an unbeliever is going to be reached at all is by the clear statement of the truth, the convicting of sins, the laying bare of the innermost secrets of his heart before his own eyes so he can see them. You're not going to reach an unbeliever with some sort of a manifestation of people up there speaking a language he's never heard before. Tongues, historically, as far as God's use of it in the work, the manifestation of unknown tongues is for the stubborn unbeliever. Not for the believer, not for the church, not for those people who need to be edified or built or strengthened in the faith of God. It's kind of funny sometimes how you can, you can begin to misunderstand things or read things into things that aren't intended to be there. How is it then, brethren, when you come together, every one of you has got a psalm, has a doctrine, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let everything be done for building. He doesn't exactly say it this way, but the obverse of that is the idea of doing things for self-aggrandizement. He wrote to the Philippians, he said, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. For just for the purpose of argument, and you know, I'm afraid there are some of us who are that way. We just are, tend to be argumentative people. We just tend to like an argument. We like to tend to just get involved. Sometimes we like to play devil's advocate. Sometimes we will just be or take the other side of an argument, regardless of how we feel about it, because it's fun. He said, let's don't do that in the church. Let's don't do things for strife or vainglory. And he wrote to the Philippines. He said here, let everything be done for the purpose of building. If any man speak in a tongue, let it be by two or at the most by three, and that by course, and let somebody interpret. If there be no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself. Ah, he speaks to himself, and I presume he understands. And to God. And, of course, if he's speaking in a language, Paul assumes it's a language that God will understand. Now, this is fascinating because a little later Paul says, don't forbid to speak in tongues. But he has just forbidden them to speak in tongues in the church for any purpose other than human communication. Hasn't he? Don't speak in tongues in the church unless there is an interpreter and it can be done for the building of the church. <coughs> Let the prophets speak by two or three. And let the other prophets judge. If anything is revealed to one that sits by, let the first hold his peace. For you may all preach or prophesy one by one, that all may learn, and that all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. That's a very important statement. If I am speaking in a language in prayer to God that I myself do not understand, is then the spirit of this prophet... Subject to this prophet? Is that spirit subject to me? Not if I don't understand it, it's not. The spirits of the prophets, he says, are subject to the prophets. That means there should be nothing going out of my mouth that is not under the control of my mind. It's important. God's spirit does not possess. Satan possesses. Demons possess. God does not 
possess human beings. The spirits of the prophets, even when they fall under the influence of the Spirit of God, those spirits are still subject to the prophets. What's Paul saying? When he says the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, he's saying, well, now, what happens in church is that somebody up here is speaking, and while he is speaking and making a very important point, somebody pops up and begins to speak another language. And somebody rebukes him for it after. He says, I'm sorry, brother. The Holy Spirit made me speak, and I couldn't control myself. I had to speak. Paul says, nonsense. You could control yourself because the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Let's speak one at a time, and let all things in the church be done decently and in order. He may not have been there, but the power of Paul's influence or his, and his authority does come through in writing to these people. Like I said, he doesn't just stop them from speaking in tongues, but for all practical purposes he does. For there is no reason to do it unless somebody interprets to the church. And if you think about this a little further, if I can interpret it to you, What's the point of my getting the tongues of angels and then interpreting it in English? Why don't I just say it in English in the first place? I think what you're dealing with in some cases is people who did not speak the language of the, of the Corinthians. Didn't speak Greek at all. They were present there. Corinth was a, a commercial hub. You had people from all over the known world that were there. I think you had people who were unable to speak to that church in a language that they would understood, understand and tried to speak in languages that were unknown to the church. And he says they're not to speak unless there is an interpreter so that the church can be edified. It was rather fascinating. These people who had done a, did a study on uh, speaking in tongues tried to do a study also on interpreters. And so they took uh, recordings of a number of people who spoke in tongues, and they took them to a number of people who claimed to have the gift of interpretation. Played the same recordings for the different groups of people. They never got any correlation on the interpretations of the tongues. Therefore, the meaning, and of course they would then explain, well, they, and, and when it was pointed out to the people who did the interpretation, they weren't offended by it. They said, well, the Lord revealed this interpretation to me and revealed another interpretation to him. Which means then that the message, the original message, was nothing. But it was the interpretation that was important. So why not give the interpretation in the first place? If God has something he wants to say to you, why does he not reveal his message to me in a language and to you in a language all of us understand? There is no reason. So, God, he says in verse 33, is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Let your women keep silence in the churches. It is not permitted to them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, saith the law. That means, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. What? Came the word of God out from you, or did it come to you only? If any man thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. Ah, then I would have to conclude that anyone who speaks in tongues in a church service without an interpreter, when he could speak to the people in the original language in the first place, is in contravention of the commandments of the Lord, isn't he? But if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. Wherefore, brethren, covet to prophesy. Desire earnestly, he says, to prophesy. And don't forbid to speak in tongues. Paul did not want to get in the category of, of, of trying to attribute what might be a gift of God to Satan the devil. He didn't know, you know, but what God may have given the guy the gift of, of, of uh, some language down in Egypt that he had never heard or some dialect that he never heard of before. And he didn't want to be in a situation where someone tried to muzzle the poor guy. But the one thing he did forbid was for him to speak in the Corinthian church without somebody to interpret it in a language that church understood. 
So while he didn't forbid to speak in tongues, he got almost there. He very nearly did, for all practical purposes. And finally, let all things be done decently and in order. I think when you begin to deal with this, I think again, just, just by way of review, it is fairly obvious to me that what was happening in Corinth was wrong. There was a misuse of something that may have been a spiritual gift. We're not sure whether it was a spiritual gift or whether it was merely a human manifestation. There's no way of knowing at this point. Paul apparently was convinced that it was not something that was satanic or demonic because he does not deal with it that way. And he says, don't forbid to speak in tongues. He is concerned, if, if again it is the, the, the abuse of a spiritual gift, with something that's going on that is not a manifestation of what he had come to understand as speaking in tongues. It was not a manifestation of what had taken place on that first day of Pentecost for the church when the tongues were poured out upon them from on high because men who were standing by understood the things that they were saying. As I said, I'm rather convinced that Paul is dealing with a manifestation that came on that church, a, a phenomenon that happened after he had left, that he, while he had a full description of what had happened, he did not fully understand what had happened. He knew that some of the things that were going on were in contradiction to reason, they were in contradiction to the scriptures. They were in contradiction to good order and, and, and decency and, and uh, a decorum in church services. And so he writes to these people to try to straighten them out. So that we can, I think, understand that, and I think if you were going to pray today and ask for God to make manifestations of spiritual gifts to his church, when you think about the needs that the church has for spiritual gifts, when you think about all the things that, that could exist in this church, such as the number of people who are sick who need to be healed, of the mysteries that need to be revealed, of the depth of understanding of, of, of the gospel that we would be able to preach it more effectively, of the ability to prophesy. When you think of all the things that we need, what on earth does this church need with a gift of tongues? And yet, almost inevitably, it seems, that one of those things that people who begin to pursue spiritual gifts pursue is the gift of tongues. Now, we started kind of in the middle of things with 1 Corinthians 14 because there were two chapters that went before this that dealt with spiritual gifts. The center chapter, the centerpiece of this whole thing is the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, which we're all so familiar with that we can quote segments of it. Many of us probably can quote all of it by heart. And if you begin to, if you take chapter 12 and read through to the end of chapter 14 with the awareness of what I've just gone through with you today, you're going to become aware very clearly of one thing. That if you are going to get on your knees before God and agonize with Him in prayer... If you're going to go into a period of time of fasting and, and really seeking God, if you're going to reach out and want a spiritual gift from God to be poured out on His church, which spiritual gift should you seek first? I think you can figure it out. You have heard Ronald L. Dart. If you would like additional information on available tapes and materials, write to Christian Educational Ministries, Post Office Box 560, White House, Texas 75791.